The Louvre in Paris is considered by many to be the world's greatest art museum. It's certainly the world's most famous museum. Art and architecture critic James Gardner has long loved the museum. In fact, his latest book is called The Louvre, The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. While the museum can intimidate a lot of people who visit, if you know how to visit smartly, it really can be a delight. James joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to recommend how he should plan a visit to the Louvre. James, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, first of all, there's a lot more to the Louvre than the art, and I want to talk about the art in a moment, but your book also features the building itself. Well, the world's biggest palace in its day became the world's biggest museum. Give us a quick review of the building's history. After all, you know, the subtitle of your book is The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. Certainly. Well, in my book, one of the things I was trying to do was to write a history of a spot of land a piece of earth that happens now to contain the Louvre. So although I don't dwell too much on this, it goes back thousands of years to the Neolithic period. And uh, when they were creating the Grand Louvre that we see today back in the 1980s, they discovered skeletons from 5,000 years ago. They discovered the remains of livestock that were bred 2,000 years ago and vineyards from 15 centuries ago. So there had been human inhabitation sparsely for thousands of years here, but it emerges into history as something like what we think of today around 1200 AD when the French king uh, Philippe Auguste decided to build this great wall around the city of Paris. Which, by the way, you can see these medieval walls in the street plan today. They tore down the walls, but you got these semicircular streets going out from the Seine River. Exactly, exactly. And uh, actually, there are a few remains of the wall, if you know where to go, but though not many. But when we think of the Louvre today, when we think of Paris today, the Louvre is precisely in the center of the city of Paris. Mm-hmm. But that was not always the case. Originally, Paris was entirely to the east of the Louvre. Hmm. That would be the island and the Latin Quarter? Yeah, the the, uh, Ile de la Cité, the Ile Saint-Louis, the Latin Quarter, the Marais, Mm -hmm. all of that. That was Paris. Mm -hmm. And then at its western flank, you you had it surrounded by this wall. Mm And after the wall was built, they decided that the British, the Normans, the invaders, could slip through. And so to avoid that, they built this fortification for a garrison outside the city walls. Mm -hmm. And they called it, for reasons that are obscure to this day, the Louvre. And it was this, this rather ugly, unimpressive fortification. James, in sort of a simplistic terms, how did the Louvre go from a royal palace to a public museum? Well, when Louis XIV left Paris for Versailles, they were looking for some function for the museum. And as the art world in Paris became ever more important, they decided to transform it into a museum. But they weren't able to do that until after the revolution had taken place in 1793. Because it seems logical if you've got um, the biggest palace in the world and you've gotten rid of the king 
and you've inherited the greatest collection of art in the world, hang that art in the palace and open it up to the public. Is, is that sort of essentially what happened? Yes, it is. And actually, one of the incentives to change it into museum was that already before the revolution, some of the best art created in France and the best art that you can now see in the Louvre was created in the Louvre itself because uh, they, they had opened up a lot of the Louvre once the king left to artists for their studios. Oh, I love it. Yeah. You had this hive of activity. You had painters in what's now the, the colonnade. You had some of the best sculptors in 18th century France. They were in a tiny corner of the uh, northern part of the Cour Carré. And if you, if you go to, uh, you know, the Cour Marly, where you have all these beautiful sculptures, those were created just a few feet away in uh, the Cour Carré. This is the heart of the art world in Paris at a time when Paris was the center of the art world. And we enjoy that to this day. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James Gardner, and his book is called The Louvre, The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. We have links to his work with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. James, when I think about Paris, and it's got so much great art, it seems to me that there's a grand plan for the entire sweep of history, and it's not all just thrown into the Louvre. The Louvre takes you up to about the middle of the 1800s, and then in our generation, the um, different museums put their post-1850 art into the Orsay Gallery, and then we have the Pompidou for today's art. Do you see it that way, that there's sort of a grand plan to show off the entire sweep of art history in Paris? Yes, I think that's right. Originally, the Louvre had been conceived as a universal museum which would contain everything, the way the Metropolitan Museum in New York does. But then, uh, starting around 1900, well, really, in the 1980s, with the opening of the Musée d'Orsay, it was decided that all art after around uh, 1850, that's to say the Impressionists and Second Empire art, would go to the Musée d'Orsay. And then ethnological art, which had originally been in the Louvre, now went in the 19, I think, 1990s or early 2000s to the Musée du Quai Branly, Jacques Chirac. Uh, but, but the idea is that you have sort of the satellite museums orbiting the Louvre, and if you take them all together, you have the entirety of human art history. James, the, the title of your book is The Most Famous Museum in the World, and I think that's probably indisputable, but what about the greatest art museum? I've always wondered about that, because think of the great art museums we can visit just in Europe. We've got the Uffizi, the Vatican, the Prado, the National Gallery in London, Vienna's Kunsthistorische Museum, the Rijksmuseum, and the, um, the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. Do any of these museums rival, in your mind, the paintings in the Louvre? Well, first of all, do they rival the paintings in the Louvre? Yes, I think so. I mean, they're all such great collections that it's, it's really difficult to choose. And it's in the nature of their greatness and of the Louvre's greatness that when you're there, you think this is the greatest museum in the world. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's hard to choose. On the other hand, you should say that the Louvre has so much else that 
a lot of those museums don't have like one of the greatest collections of Egyptian art anywhere in the world. Yeah. And Greek and Roman statuary. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. And and so much else. And one thing each of these museums have in common is a great and powerful royal family. And uh, I guess that helps when you're assembling art uh, through the centuries. Certainly. And it, one should also say that uh, each of them tends to emerge from a context of great artistic creativity. If you go to the Rijksmuseum, you know, uh, Holland was one of the great centers of art in uh, the 17th century, and so many of their greatest masterpieces have gone from the various houses around the museum into the museum. Something similar happens in the Uffizi in Florence, and the Prado in well, when Madrid. Well, when you go to the Prado in Madrid, you find all these amazing um, paintings from the Netherlands, and then you realize, oh, That's yeah, right. there was a time when the Netherlands were called the Spanish Netherlands, who was the king. Exactly. Well, he was down in Madrid, and he gets all the great art to this day. That's right. It's an amazing collection. The, you know, the, the Prado... That's a collection that I didn't know as well as some other collections like those of England and France, the Louvre. But when I was there recently, I, I had this powerful sense that this is the greatest collection I've ever been in. And I don't know if that's factually the case, but it's in the nature of a great collection that it conjures you into feeling that way. Well, Charles V was the most powerful man in Europe, ruling, I think, from Madrid. And, his... and he had excellent taste, <laughs> had as, did taste. His, as did his son, Philip II. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James Gardner. He's an art critic and an art historian from New York, and he's written a book called The Louvre, The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. James, when we go to the Louvre, we find that everybody is going to the same handful of rooms or galleries, and this vast museum is empty, relatively empty elsewhere. I've noticed that Western tourists tend to go to the Denon Wing with all of the artists that we know, but when you go to, what is it, the, the Richelieu Wing with the Near Eastern Antiquities, you find a lot of people from uh, the Middle East there and travelers coming in from Saudi Arabia or from Pakistan or, or from uh, Turkey, they'll be more likely to check out the Mesopotamian art that most of us Western travelers underrate. What's your take on appreciating dimensions of the museum that most of us American tourists overlook? Well, it's such a vast collection that you obviously have to pace yourself and... I would say that the best way to see the museum initially is simply to float through it and take in whatever comes your way and enjoy it. You shouldn't try to concentrate too much on individual objects. In fact, you're you giving probably... us, in your book, you give us freedom to do that. It's a beautiful thing. I love your term, uh, what do you call it, filter feeding. Like a filter big, feeding, Like a big yeah. whale floating down the gallery yes. and just kind of uh, taking it in like a whale would. Exactly. That's uh, that's the most comfortable way to do it. You won't knock yourself out. You won't end up hating the art, you know, because you're tired or you're you're doing it against your will. You'll enjoy it and you'll see the whole museum. Because the thing, one of the things I try to emphasize in my book is that the museum itself, the structure, is as fascinating an object as exhilarating a masterpiece as anything in the museum, anything hanging on the walls. But because of the way in which people conceive museums, they're just sort of the frame 
that that you just have to pass through in order to get to uh, to the art. But you know, there are stairways that are some of the masterpieces of European architecture. Mm. Most people they're not conditioned to think of stairways as anything other than this potentially opulent means of ascending oh, from one yeah. level to another. Are you thinking of standing at the base of the stairway leading up to the Winged Victory of Samothrace? That's one. That's the Escalier de Rue. I love that. I mean, and to sit yeah. for a moment and just appreciate the ensemble of architecture and history and, and statuary, it's just so exciting, I think. Yeah, and you have you have amazingly beautiful stairways, and perhaps there are no more beautiful stairways in France than in the Louvre, but people don't pay attention to that. And what you might remember, James, uh, for our travelers, you know, before that, it was a tight spiral staircase. I mean, you, you may be going to the Saint-Chapelle church before your visit to the Louvre, and to get into that greatest Gothic interior, just that wonderful festival of medieval stained glass, you walk up this tight, dark spiral staircase, and then you enter. But now the mark of a great modern palace by a very important person would be not to have a spiral staircase, but to have that grand staircase. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. You have them in Versailles, you have them in the Louvre, and they're, they're masterpieces. And so in general, you should pay attention not only to the art on the walls, mm-hmm. but to your surroundings, because the Louvre is one of the great architectural and cultural masterpieces in Paris in itself, not just for what it contains. You know, there's one thing I'd, I'd like to talk to you about before our, our time is up. In this day and age when we have this Instagram culture and everybody's got to get a photograph of themselves with the iconic Mona Lisa. We have all over Europe these gotta-see bucket list art masterpieces causing amazing crowds, whereas the rest of the collection, which is so important, kind of just gets trampled by as everybody stampedes towards the famous piece of art. In Milano at the Forteza, there's a Michelangelo Pieta, the Pieta Rondonini, I believe it's called, and they've actually moved it out of the gallery and put it in its own building. So the tourists that are just there to see Michelangelo's Pieta can do that and not muck up the whole museum experience for other people. Is there any talk of considering moving the Mona Lisa to a, a freestanding building nearby and letting the Louvre be the Louvre without that, you know, superstar? Well, there's talk from people like me, but I'm not sure that anyone's listening to me. Uh, it would be it would be a good idea. I don't foresee that happening. Mm-hmm. But but if it were to happen, you'd suddenly see far fewer crowds in the Louvre itself, which is really strange because in the place where the the Mona Lisa is now hanging, you have around forty other paintings, most of them acquired by Louis the Fourteenth, and these are some of the greatest masterpieces in Western art. Right? If you had only one of them there it would be worth an entire voyage to go see it by Titian, by Veronese. And they're totally eclipsed by the Louvre in the middle and all the people with their selfie sticks raised above the crowd. It's true. Almost no one pays any attention to the other art on the wall. James Gardner is a respected art and architecture critic from New York. He explores the Louvre inside and out in his book called The Louvre, The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. You can listen to his previous visit with us on Travel with Rick Steves and find links to his work at ricksteves.com slash radio. James, this is such a fascinating topic. A lot of times when I go to a great museum, I imagine the joy and the challenge, the creative challenge of being the curator of that museum and how I might, 
you know, organize it. If you were the curator of the Louvre, how would you change the museum? Hmm, that's a good question. Well, first of all, we, we might start by moving the Mona Lisa. Uh, I would try to restore some of the original decor of some of the most beautiful rooms that have been somewhat tarnished by tasteless post-World War II modernist design. I would get rid of some of the furniture that's from the 1950s and put more period furniture there. Uh, in terms of the, the art that's there, it, it seems as though they're, they're doing a good job. You see, there's this thing called the, the Long Gallery, the Grand Gallery, which is one of the longest structures in the world. Um, part of that has been cut short and given to the École du Louvre, which is a university teaching academy. Mm -hmm. I would reclaim that for the museum and perhaps... It's a quarter uh, mile long. There. You want it to be really exhausting. I, I've got a little game I play, which is my heel-toe speed-walking tour of the Grand Gallery, and it's really exercise. You get your laps. You can go a quarter of a mile in that thing, slaloming through all of the tourists, doing your, what do you call it, your filter-feeding of all that great art. <laughs> That's right. Well, well you know, uh, most people, when they're inside a structure, they don't think they're walking. But in fact, if you go spend an afternoon in the Louvre, you're probably walking two or three miles. Mm. So you're getting very good exercise. And you're soaking up all that great art. James Gardner, thanks so much exactly. for joining us. Uh, the book is uh, The Louvre, The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. James, I'd love to go to the Louvre with you someday in the future. Best wishes. We shall do so. Right. Thank you for having me. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com. <laughs>